Thanks, Will and Eliza. That was a really, it's really great work that you guys are doing out there and, and, and over here as well. Cause, um, I find that in service, it's, it's, it's just as beneficial, if not more beneficial to the volunteers uh, than it is to those who receive. Um, I think there was some editing and technical glitches, but we got through that. Uh, before we start, um, I just want to bring your attention. I think there's a survey. Yep. So, um, we had reported a few weeks ago uh, that the conclusion to the business meeting is that we would roll out a survey um, and get feedback from you all as a church as to uh, what you think the leading of our church should be, whether it's staying here in the afternoon or moving to a morning service. Now, we've received about 23 to 25 responses to this survey, um, and it's just we have probably about 50 people that are part of our church community and having you fill out the survey is really, really valuable. So if you have not filled out the survey, please fill out the survey. Um, even now is good. Um, and, and also I just want to re-invite you all to join us for prayer, um, on Friday evening, every other Friday evening, as we really just go to God and kind of, yeah, just kind of seek, seek his will and his leading. Um, yeah, I've just, I think last time we had, we had a small handful of people, but I, I really believe that if we have the majority of our church together praying and seeking God's will, that it, it will make a difference because we'll start talking about, hey, what do you think we should do with each other? And those conversations will lead to a deeper understanding from different perspectives, um, and, and it'll enhance prayer. I, I don't think this is going to be a quick decision. Um, you know, in the, in the 20 some odd responses that we've had, the result has also been 50, 50, <laughs> which is, you know, not, you know, I don't know that it's giving clarity to the current situation. And part of that is because there's a small sample size, but the other part is that, um, we, I believe that prayer is going to make a difference. And so, um, yeah, I just want to re-invite you, um, to, to come together. So we'll, we'll be meeting this coming Friday, um, I believe at 8.30 p.m., and Jin Ha will send out the invitation um, to join us for prayer. Um, so today, you will notice that Jin Ha is not with us. Uh, her friend, Sylvia Mendez, is getting commissioned as a pastor today, and it's a, it's a significant moment for Sylvia, as uh, she has been an Adventist for... Um, not that long. I don't know the exact number, so I'm not going to make up a number. But she she has she's she's been in Adventist for less than a de- less than a decade, and she's getting commissioned as a pastor today, which is very very significant. And as Jin Hao was chatting with Sylvia, she realized that Sylvia was organizing her own commissioning service. And Sylvia's situation is kind of unique because she's not a pastor of a local church. She has had pastoral experience, but she's working at the union, and she provides uh, family ministry support for um, for. Uh, Australia, all the Adventists in Australia. And so Jinha said, let me organize this for you rather than you trying to organize all the details of your, your commissioning service. And so Jinha is supporting her friend today. Um, and they're, they're out in Casey Church, I believe. And so today the, uh, the Kim men are, uh, we're, we're, we're surviving. <laughs> but uh, before we begin um, the sermon today, I'm just going to invite you to join me for one more word of prayer. Father God, as we talk today about control versus trust, I pray that as we read your word and as we delve into uh, Numbers chapter 19 and 20, that you would speak to our hearts um, and that you would 
give us clarity in the moments where we wrestle between control and trust in you. And um, yeah, I just pray that your spirit would be in this place and that you would um, speak to our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. I find that there have been a number of, uh, of, of occasions when I've had to wrestle with this idea of controlling a situation versus trusting God in a situation. And in particular, it, 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 this, has, this, this wrestle comes with my interpersonal relationships, whether it's my relationship with my family. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to call him out. Hey, look over there. <laughs> like, what is he doing? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> when it comes to the interpersonal relationships of my family or whether it has to do with my, the interpersonal relationships of, of my colleagues and the people that I work with in ministry, and there are often times where I'm faced with challenges and circumstances where I'm just not sure what to do. And my default mode is to try and manage the relationship. And there have been many occasions where I've tried to maintain control, and it just gets much worse. Uh, maybe about 12 months ago, I was still kind of getting used to my role as a church, plant, uh, church director for church planting. <laughs> the title is not important. <laughs> um, and I was still just getting used to this role. And there were moments where church plants would go into crisis mode, where the pastor of that church plant was not getting along with the leadership of, of that church plant. And in this one circumstance, there was quite a bit of conflict in, in one of the local churches. And so the pastor and the leaders had called out and said, we need, we need some mediation. And so I thought, well, this is my time to shine, and I try to step into the role and listen to the pastor's side of things and then listen to the local church's side of things and said, okay, we need to have additional meetings, and then we'll bring the two parties together and mediate reconciliation. So part of that role was sitting down with one of the key leaders, and he just shared for about maybe an hour and a half of all the things that were not going right. And by this time, I had gotten to know um, the local church pastor a bit better, and to try and build relationships, I said, yes, there are areas of improvement that need to take place. These are my observations, but let's talk about what we can do in terms of moving forward. Well, after that long discussion, that individual went and he recorded his own recollection of that conversation. The problem was his memory was flawed. <laughs> and he wrote this long email Right, outlining, these are all the things that Pastor Roy says this individual is doing wrong. Now, unbeknownst to me, that local church pastor went off on holiday for annual leave, and when he returned, he was at the airport, and he receives this email. And that local leader had emailed all the board and the pastor and said, this is what happened with my meeting with Roy. Now, that pastor read that email, broke down and cried, and his wife was next to him and asked him, what's going on? And he showed her the email. And in his own hurt, he then emailed all the conference administration and said, this is what has happened, and basically, I got run over by a truck. <laughs> this is what happened in summary. And so here I am going, okay, I've tried to help. I've made it much worse, and now, like, I just look totally incompetent. And so I sit down with the local church leader, and I say, okay, this is a very interesting email that you sent out. There are a few things that I want to talk about. Number one, 
Like, well, okay, I need to. <laughs> Basically, I said, let's revisit our conversation. And I, I pointed out that the errors of his of his memory <laughs> and, and then and then i just went into firefight mode and it was it was just terrible it was a terrible time and i just realized you know i i felt so self-confident and i just thought i can manage this and it just it was, it was terrible there's so many times in my own family life where i'm trying to manage my children right they're not listening. They, don't, they do things that I don't want them to do. And the way that I manage them is by getting mad, right? I get upset. I raise my, I raise my voice. And they're like, okay, daddy's getting mad. We need to, we need to get back in line. And, and what, I, what I realize is the more that I try to manage the situation, the more that I try to control my kids, the, the, the less control I have and the worse things get. Because for them, they're not going to, you know, when I grew up, there was like this deep sense of fear of my dad. Like, if I don't listen to my dad, he is going to end me. That, that, that's literally the thought that I had. And, you know, when I grew up, this is like, you know, my parents, my dad grew up in like the 50s in Korea. Like, this is, this is post-World War II in the midst of the Korean War. There was no such thing as abuse or anything like that. There was... We, we need to teach you like how to live, right? And I, I remember my dad going, "Okay, you go pick out the size of your the the, the stick that you're going to get whipped with, right?" And so I'd go and find the smallest stick I could find. I'm like, "This is all I could find," right? That that's how I grew up. And my kids will never face those fears. They will never have the fear of their dad coming after them with a stick, right? And so there is just this when I'm like, "Hey, I need you to listen." There's this. What are you going to do about it, right? And so then, what management levers do I get to pull? I'm going to kick you out of the house? <laughs> like, like well, what, can I, what can I say, right? And so then, I'm left with this challenge of not knowing how to manage these interpersonal relationships. And, and today, I just I want you to think about your interpersonal relationships, whether it's in your family, with your spouse, with your partner, or even in your professional life. There are moments when those relationships make life very, very challenging. And how do you balance out control versus trust, especially when it comes to God? And so today, the sermon title is Trust Versus Control, Wrestling with Obedience. Today, I want to look at Numbers chapter 19 and 20. And I'm just going to give you an overview before we go into the text, because um, just in this, in this case, the table of contents is going to be useful. So um, in Numbers 19, we're going to read about the rules and rituals around death, and then we'll look at Numbers chapter 20, and we'll see that in Numbers chapter 20, at the beginning of the chapter, there's a prominent leader in Israel. Her name is Miriam, and she dies, and she happens to be Moses' sister. Then at the end of the chapter, Aaron, Moses' brother, also dies, and he's the high priest of Israel. But sandwiched in between these stories of death, there's this story of Israel running out of water, and then the miracle of water pouring out of a rock. And this is a fairly famous story. But the context is going to make this story have a lot more meaning. So let's go into, uh, before we go into Numbers chapter 19, this story is written this way on purpose. Death, like rules and regulations around death, death, water, and then death. And, And the reason why is because in the Bible, there's this idea of springs of water, which holds significant meaning in Scripture. So in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, and I won't read it, but 
Jesus basically uses this metaphor of water and life-giving water, and, and really it's supposed to draw the attention of the Hebrews to his own identity and purpose as the one who can give life, but they're also supposed to think about times where God used water to save his people, and that would then draw people to the life and ministry of Jesus. And so in this story, there's this death, and then God says, here, I'm giving you life-giving water in the midst of all this death. So let's go into Numbers chapter 19, and we'll dig into this story a little bit more. Now, in Numbers 19, the progression of thought in this chapter, it's not linear. Oftentimes, you're reading, just, and it's kind of like, the story doesn't quite make sense, so I've pulled all these verses out of order to make the story make more sense. All right, so Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, we begin the idea here. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. So there are rules and regulations and rituals around death. And and in Hebrew culture and theology, the laws around clean and unclean things or pure and impure things, this is really important because maintaining cleanliness or purity it was so important to the Israelites because this is the connection between one's status and their relationship with sacred space. So in other words, being clean would allow these people to have access to God. Being clean would allow these people to have access to community and all the benefits that are part of that. But you will notice in the text that when someone comes in contact with the dead, one becomes unclean. And for the Israelites, there was this idea that death brings about this pollution. So we continue on verses 11 to 13, and I just want to highlight the seriousness of the pollution. In other words, if anybody touches a human corpse, they become unclean. If they then touch another person, then that person becomes unclean. And there's this kind of this spreading of uncleanliness. If you look at verse 22... I've just kind of said that. (laughs) So for the Hebrews, this pollution, there's this great danger that lies within this pollution. There's this idea that pollution is able to spread. And so everything that they do tries to mitigate the spreading. Now, I I don't know if you, it's not that I don't know if you remember about COVID, but I, I don't know if you remember looking at those pictures of people who try to make up their own filtration systems and I, you know, I didn't know what the um, copyright situation looked like, so I didn't post the pictures. But do you remember people wearing those, like, giant bottles over their heads? It was like those five-gallon water filter things, and they'd put it on their head and then pop in two other bottles. And there were just all sorts of contraptions that people were making up, all for the sake of trying to remain, I guess, pure. And, and that's, I think that's the best um, connection between what's happening here in the Old Testament to what we've experienced in our lifetimes. You know, and, and while when you look through these rules and regulations, if you ever read through Numbers chapter 19, when I read through it, I just thought, why is this so specific? And it's just, it kind of, it's almost comical, the, the type of rituals that the Israelites have to do. But if you put this in context to something like the Black Plague, and it's, it's historically documented that the Jewish community were infected by the Black Plague much less than a lot of the other communities. And so the Christian community actually blamed the Jews for the Black Pig, and there, were, there, were, there was massacres and mass persecution because of 
the, the relative health that the Jewish community had experienced. And, and the reason why is because if you look at the rules and regulations around the Hebrews and their interaction with the dead, there was a lot of isolation that took place. <laughs> oh, do I call them out? Do I not call them out? I'm going to call them out. Hey, Joshua, I'm glad you're having a good time. Can you be quiet? Thank you. <laughs> all right. So with, with, the, with the Hebrews, there were all these rules and regulations around isolation, especially when it came to the dead. And when it came to the Black Plague, the, the reason why it spread so much was because of bacterial, the spread of bacteria. And really what people, scientists are speculating, what ended the Black Plague was isolation. So anyway, all these rules and regulations around clean and unclean, they make sense in the context of something like that. So let's look at the solution. We've seen the problem. In Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 to 8, I'm just going to invite you to read through this as I narrate. But in summary, just in bullet points, the solution to the unclean death problem is that Israel, they were supposed to get a young red cow. and the text, it says a red heifer. One that hasn't had a yoke laid on it. Then the priest was supposed to take the cow and slaughter the cow, take some of the blood and sprinkle it in front of the tabernacle seven times. Then the priest would go and they would burn the cow and they would take a few items, cedar wood, hyssop, and red wool, and they would also throw them on the fire as well. The priest would then need to go wash his clothes and bathe and he would be unclean until evening, but after evening he would be clean. If you look at verses 9 to 10, the instructions continue on. Then someone is supposed to come and gather the ashes of the cow and put the contents in a clean place outside of the camp so that it can be used as a cleansing agent. The cleansing agent is basically water which is mixed with ashes. And then the person who does this also needs to wash their clothes as well, and they would be unclean until evening. So once again, isolation. We continue reading verses 17 to 19. So here's what actually happens. Let's say somebody dies, funeral takes place, whoever touches a dead body, they're unclean for a period of seven days. Well, when somebody would be unclean, that person would take the ashes of the red heifer, they would pour water into a jar, pour the ashes into the jar, and they would then take some shrubbery or hyssop, and they would dip it into the water and get sprinkled. And there was a seven-day period where they would get sprinkled on the, on the third day and also on the seventh day. And after the seventh day, the person would then be clean. Now, there's this interesting connection between the ritual of cleansing from the pollution of death and the death of Jesus. And the connections are that the red cow dies, and it's its death that largely makes up the cleansing solution. Then the cleansing solution gets sprinkled on the third and the seventh day, which then stops the pollution of death. And what's really interesting for me is that Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, right, on Sunday. So he dies Friday, is in the tomb Saturday, and then he resurrects on Sunday. But also, Jesus is laid in the tomb and he rests on the seventh day. And the story of Jesus is powerful because death is it's one of the worst parts of life. There's this certainty of death for all of us. 
I don't know if you've seen those uh, interviews on YouTube between uh, Brian Johnson um, and just people who find his life interesting. And Brian Johnson is this multimillionaire who spends $2 million every single year to reverse the effects of aging. And so he has this whole routine from morning until evening. And um, anyway, people have kind of, people find his story quite interesting. But, but my point is, no matter how hard we try and fight it, death is certain. But here, Jesus in this story of redemption, he takes on death. He dies himself, and then he conquers it. He conquers this pollutant that is contagious, that cannot be stopped, and Jesus' death provides hope. So the rituals of the red cow and the cleansing water, they were to provide the solution to the perpetual uncleanliness that death brought. So here we are in verse chapter 20. And at the very beginning of the chapter, the very next scene, we see Miriam dies. Now, here's a prominent woman. Uh, you, you imagine how many people were present at her funeral? How many people handled her body? How many people helped to take care of her, all, of her, all of her, all of the things that she left behind? And the reality is you have this large group of people that are unclean, and that uncleanliness is then going to spread. And when you look at verse 2, you notice there was no water. So there's no hope of becoming clean. And from what God says, he's like, if you are not able to be clean in a seven-day period, then you are cut off from the camp of Israel. It seems like such an unfair rule and regulation because God is the one who says, these are the rules around purification, but there's no water. So then the people go to Moses, and they're just really upset. Like, Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Why, you know, why did we have to leave this land where there was water, where there was food, where there was sustenance, and now we're here in the middle of this wilderness? There's no hope. People are dying. We're unclean. Moses, do something about it. So Numbers chapter 20, verses 6 to 8. Moses and Aaron, they turn to God and they ask for guidance. And so God tells them, take the staff that I gave you, gather everyone together in front of the rock, and I want you to speak to the rock and water is going to pour out of it. Then you can bring water out of the rock for the needs of the community. So here's what happens, verses 9 to 12. Moses gathers the people in front of the rock just as God commands him. But instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock twice. When you look at verse 10, you really get a feel for what Moses is feeling. He looks out over these people, and he just feels frustration. He feels resentment. Here, God has provided a solution, and God is like, Moses, I've got this. But Moses puts himself between the people and God. And he asks this question, must we bring you water out of this rock? And it's like, Moses, what power do you possess to be able to bring out water out of an inanimate object? Like, what's going on here? And I guess the quick answer is, like, the people feel like it is Moses' job because he's the leader. But Moses takes personal offense to how the people respond to the drought. 
even though God has a solution and ultimately God is the one that's in charge, Moses' primary concern at that moment, it wasn't God's glory. His primary concern was, how do I look right now as a leader and as a person? Moses was thinking, the people don't think that I can provide for them. And so instead of pointing people to God and his provision, Moses tries to prove his own ability to provide. And if you look at the text, it says he hits the rock twice. And I just think it's interesting because why twice? And I think he hit the rock once and nothing happened. And he was like, oh no, (laughs) like what do I do? Because the instruction was, Moses, speak to the rock. But Moses is trying to prove I am going to provide for you. So he hits the rock, nothing happens, and he goes into panic mode, and he hits it again a second time. And I wonder if he hit it harder or softer the second time. Like I was like, will it work? Tick. And, you know, if I were, I wonder if God was tempted to just not provide water. <laughs> like, that's not what I told you to do, Moses. I really wonder what was going on behind the scenes. But you really get a picture of God's mercy because water pours out of the rock and it really gives you a picture of what's going on in god's heart he's like you disobeyed me but i won't make you look foolish in front of everybody water pours out and the people the people's need is 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 taken care of if you look at verse 12 excuse me verse 12 at the very end of that text god certainly wasn't happy with moses and as a result moses and aaron they don't get to enter the promised land with israel so God gave Moses this serious learning moment. And, and for me, another thing that makes this story interesting is because there were two times where water poured out of a rock. This is the second time. The first time is in Exodus 17, verses 3 to 6. So once again, there's no water. The people complain to Moses, and Moses goes to God. And God actually tells him, Moses, go strike the rock. So the first time... Moses tries to get water out of the rock, he hits it. The second time, he's just supposed to speak. See, God still used Moses in Numbers chapter 20, but you see God pulling back the physical interaction between Moses and the miracle. And it, it switches from, the interaction switches from physical to verbal. God wanted Israel to know that he had them, that he was watching over them. And in the midst of all the death, in the midst of the drought, in the midst where they had this great need, God wanted Moses and Israel to know, I've got you. And I promise I'll give you life-giving water. But notice here, there's a little action that Moses has to do And there's an action that Israel has to do as well. Moses has to follow God's word. He's got to trust that God is not going to abandon him. And for the people, it was trusting in Moses and not being moved by every circumstance that happened to them. It wasn't the first time that they ran out of water. So I have a question that I want to ask you. What do you usually do when you're faced by difficult people at work, or at home, or in your life. And I'll be honest, I'm similar to Moses, where I take things personally all the time. You know, there are times where my kids are upset, and they natu- when they get upset, they need to direct their frustration. And so inevitably, they get mad at me. 
right? Like, oh, I broke my Lego. Then it's my fault. Like, how does that even make sense? Like, I didn't, I didn't touch your Lego, but I'm mad. But you're mad at me. And so then it's so difficult to detach myself from that anger. You know, when I think about my kids learning and their development, I often ask the question, well, I don't ask myself the question like, it's intuitive. And what I mean by that is the failure of my children, I, I, I feel, what does the failure of my children look like for me? I'm trying to teach them to become responsible human beings, but if they fail at life, what does that look like for me? My kids act out at church and they hurt people or they do whatever, and then I'm embarrassed as a parent because it's my kid, right? It's so difficult to detach myself and how I look to what my kids do. And it's the same for my ministry. If ministry is not going well, I I feel, how do I look as a pastor, And my natural tendency in those moments is to try and take control of the narrative. How do I manage the situation? How can I change the outcome so that I look better and I feel better? It's so natural to worry and feel anxiety and then get upset and then make things worse, which I also often do. But here in this story, God is saying, I want you to turn to me. I want you to learn how to draw water from the stone. So what does it mean to trust God in these situations? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul comments on this Old Testament story, and he says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. See, God wanted Israel and Moses to learn to lean in towards God. God wanted Moses to learn, prioritize my perception of you over the perception of others. Something that I find really helpful is to find Bible passages that give me clarity on how God views me. And there are times where I just, I need that reminder every single day and sometimes multiple times in a day. And I've shared in the past that 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of my go-to passage. as this idea of how God is love. And in that moment, just kind of reflecting on God, what does your love mean for me? And what does your love mean for those who I am serving? You know, that one exercise changes how I interact with individuals because rather than trying to control the narrative And rather than trying to look good, the emphasis then is, how do I bring water to people? How do I bring the love of God to other people? And I find when the focus fixates on how to serve and care, the perception also changes. You know, there are times where my kids are upset and they're really frustrated. And if I go into the room when they're frustrated and I try to change their attitude and their behavior, and I'm like, this is how I want you to change, it gets worse. But if I go in there and I try and cuddle my kids, what usually happens is they get mad. They're like, go away. And then I'll ask them, do you want me to go away? And when they get the impression, dad's not here to change me, he's here to comfort me, then they don't say, yeah, I'm so glad you're here. They just don't say anything. Like, do you want me to leave? And the answer is not yes. (laughs) And what I found is like, when they get the impression, you're here for comfort. The nature of the relationship completely changes. This act of learning to serve people rather than trying to control narratives 
has the power to dramatically change how we minister in our spaces, whether they be sacred or secular. And I I get that some people are just toxic. Some people are not going to respond to you trying to minister to them. And in those cases, I'm not saying try to. It's better just to give them space. But in the moments where you know an attitude has shift for me from focusing on how do I look versus how do I serve has such life-giving properties, especially in moments where the circumstances feel so dire. You know, it's in those moments of trusting God that God then gets to step in and change the outcome of our lives. I want to try and draw something for you. Um, long time ago... Um, scientists were exploring with um, shooting electrons through uh, shooting electrons through um, various different, I guess, obstacles. And something called the double slit experiment came about as a result of this. And I'm going to try and draw the double slit experiment, and I'm going to do my best to explain it. So just bear with me <laughs> now that I've given a disclaimer to myself. I'll just try and narrate as I'm drawing. So, in the physical world, there are two specific kind of movements that this experiment looks at. The first type of movement is the movement of particles. And so, what happens is, if you shoot a bunch of different particles through two slits... What eventually happens is, if you've got a wall that's able to measure and mark how the particles fall or land, you'll see a concentration of particles that land basically in the shape of the slit. But then there's a second kind of movement, and that's the movement of waves. Can you... See that? It's a little bit, it's not very um, clear. But anyway, so when you have waves that move through double slits, what ends up happening is that the pattern that's left on the wall is different. I'm going to need a picture because my artistic abilities are pretty terrible. All right, so when waves move, Oh, whoops. <laughs> I just combined two drawings. Let's try and do this better. <clears throat> when waves move through a double slit, as they spread, they have intersection, uh, intersecting, they have intersections. And as they keep spreading, those intersections continue on and basically at the peak of where they intersect, it leaves, it leaves a different kind of a pattern on the wall. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> if this doesn't make sense, just YouTube double slit, double slit experiment and then you'll, you'll get a better picture of what's going on. And I'm not a physicist, so I can't explain it <laughs> clearly. Now, what, what happened was 
scientists start exploring with electrons, and electrons are tiny, tiny little particles, and they were able to shoot electrons through this through these double slits, and what they found was that when they shot electrons through these double slits, the electrons moved as waves rather than particles. And so for the scientists, they were thinking, this is really weird because electrons, they're, they're, it, it, it's, it's, they have physical property. They shouldn't move like waves. And so they thought, well, let's, let's do a little bit of an experiment and let's try and, let's try and look at which, which slit are the electrons, um, what slit are the electrons flying through? And, and how is that, how is that going to, um, how is that going to impact the, 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 the pattern that's left on the wall? And so they put a measuring device and they track the movement of the electron. And as they put the measuring device, and you could call it kind of like an observer, to track the electrons, what ended up happening is that the pattern wasn't a wave, but the pattern was a particle. So the nature of the movement of the electron changed based on the measuring device. Does that make sense? Okay, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know why I asked you. Does that make sense? Okay, so that was, that was very curious for the physicists. And so what they did was, okay, well, let's take the measuring device away. Every time they would take the measuring device away, the electrons would move as a wave. But each time, each time they would put the observer back on, the electron would move as a particle. And it was as if the particle could tell, I can see you're trying to figure out what I'm doing, and I'm not going to let you find out. And it was, it, it was just, it's created this whole theory of, of quantum physics. And so if you Google double slit experiment, you'll find a better explanation than what I just gave you <laughs> in summary. And, and what I find amazing about this experiment is that We've got like this scientific experiment that shows that observation has the power to change reality. Like if you think about that, there's a physical, there's a physical electron, and and mathematically what they're saying is that when the electron passes through the double slits, it goes through both slits and none of the slits. And it was crazy because they would shoot one electron at a time slowly. So they're like, before we're shooting a ton of electrons and it's creating this wave pattern, but let's just shoot one electron at a time slowly and see what happens. And the reality is it was still creating this wave pattern on the wall. And so it was as if that electron was splitting, hitting itself, and then spreading out and, and, and ending up on the wall. It's, it's a crazy experiment. Anyway, highly recommend that you Google it. And... And so when it comes to us and God, the power of observing and saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to observe what you're doing. I'm going to follow your word. My point is that there are times where God acts differently based on how we observe him. And so in the story of Moses and learning how to provide water for Israel rather than taking matters into his own hands, I hope that as you consider the different relationships in your lives, and you consider, God, what does it mean to observe you and to trust you in this space? What does it mean to say, I'm going to follow your word. I want to learn how to serve rather than control the narrative. 
you know, with that pastor um, that, that I hurt, it took a long time, it took a lot of conversations to just, number one, tell him, I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm so sorry for the way that things have rolled, uh, things have um, panned out. And, you know, the two of us, we had conversations, we prayed about the situation, and what ended up happening is that the leaders in his church, they all exited. They, there was this massive exodus, and they said, we're leaving. And my comment to him was, this is the best thing that could happen to your church, because now you can start over again. And, and, and rather than trying to, like, well, my relationship with him changed because then we could start talking about, what can I do to provide support for what you're doing? Here, I'll come, I'll come preach at your church. These are the different training things that we provide. Let's, let's rebuild. And as we've gone through that, the relationship, it, it's so different now. And it's, it's interesting because this guy, he's, he's older than I am, and he's like, he calls me his pastor. And, and for me, what's valuable is a relationship. And I've learned that if I just focus on what can I do to help you, I don't have to worry about the narrative. I don't have to worry about how do I look in this situation. And so I hope that as you consider the challenging relationships in your life, that as you live out this concept of learning how to give living water to people, how to be that living water to people, especially in moments where there's so much frustration and difficulty, may you experience the providence of God. May God bless you. I'm just going to close the prayer and then we'll do what we normally do. Yeah. Father God, um, as we consider the different circumstances that we're in, sometimes the, our relationships with people are very strained, they're very challenging. We need, we need you, we need living water from you, and we need wisdom how to provide living water for those around us. And so I just pray that you would teach us how to minister in the various positions that you have us in, and may we see you work. Teach us how to observe you. Teach us how to give you space. And may we see you act and create a new reality. We pray these things in your name. Amen.